And now, for your holiday enjoyment, a special Memorial Day tribute program, The Price Paid for Freedom. Hello and welcome to this special Memorial Day tribute program. I'm Jerry Stewart. All across our land today, hundreds of millions of Americans are remembering those who have gone before us, are going before us even to this day to keep our nation, America, safe and free. There are tens of thousands of ceremonies and programs and presentations all built around one powerful truth that freedom is not free. But who was willing to go before us, to stand in front of us like a shield protecting us? Who is it that keeps our nation free? Our military today and our veterans, those who have fought, those who have paid the price. One of the most powerful speeches in our U.S. history was the speech given by President Abraham Lincoln in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania on November the 19th, 1863. Only a little more than four months before, the bloodiest three-day battle in our nation's history had been fought there. And after that battle, so many lives had been lost, so much blood had been shed there that they took that battlefield and made it into a cemetery. It was a solemn occasion that day in 1863. What could Mr. Lincoln say or do that would properly commemorate what the soldiers there had already done? After all, almost 50,000 brave men on each side had been killed or captured or wounded there. But in only 10 sentences, only 272 words, President Lincoln said it all. But the power of his speech was not in what he said, but what the soldiers had done. They had given their last full measure of devotion. And Lincoln knew that there was nothing they could do that day to consecrate or hallow that land. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled there, had already consecrated it. In his speech, Lincoln said this, The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. How very true. Oh yes, we honor these today who have already done their great part. But the question is, what is our part today here in America, here and now? Lincoln said it well. First, he said, to take an increased devotion to the cause those have died for. Second, he said, to resolve that the dead shall not have died in vain. And finally, to remember. And that is what this day, Memorial Day, is all about. Remembering. And on today's program, we're doing just that, remembering. And I have with me today some amazing stories as told by those who were there. You'll hear the World War II stories of Ernest and Bernice Zimmerman. They both served in World War II, and while Bernice was busy serving in the care of the sick and wounded, Ernest was overseas and was at Iwo Jima from the first landing until the end. It's a special story of just how important a role our American women played during that war. You'll also hear the story of one soldier, Albert Bishop. 
He served alongside General Douglas MacArthur, and he was there that day in the Philippines when General MacArthur returned. Finally, you'll hear the story of retired U.S. Army Major Edward Rofe. He served in Vietnam as a helicopter pilot, and while he was there, he performed a selfless act of courage that won him the U.S. Army's highest non-combat medal, the Soldier's Medal. This program today is a great opportunity for you and your family to gather around the radio and hear these true stories. It's also very important that our children hear these stories. I know that sometimes the stories are harsh, but we all must be reminded. It's hard for me to believe, but since I did my first Veterans Radio interview all the way back in 1999, I've had the great privilege and opportunity to interview well over 100 World War II veterans. And sadly, today, most are gone, but their true stories of war live on. One such story that you're about to hear is the World War II story of Buford Richardson. He served proudly in the U.S. Navy. And now, the story of Buford Richardson. In 1941, when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor and our America entered into the war, all the young boys wanted to get right into the battle, to fight for our nation, to make things right in the world. One of these young boys was 15-year-old Buford Richardson, but he was too young, and he had to stand by and watch as his older brother Darrell became part of the battle by joining the Army. But Buford's time would come soon enough, and in April of 1944, he turned 18, and two months later, he was in the Navy at basic training in San Diego. He was assigned to what they called amphibious duty. Specifically, Buford was trained in the operation of the landing craft boats, and he was assigned to the USS Severe. This ship, the USS Severe, was operating as an attack transport with the main job of carrying troops and transporting invasion forces ashore. You see, when the troops are hitting the beach to attack, getting them to that beach safely is of the greatest importance. To drop off the troops and then get back to the ship to bring more troops to the beach. And you'd better know what you're doing or you'll be sunk by enemy artillery fire or dumped in the crushing waves. According to Buford and the official ship records, they left the U.S. in December of 1944 and found service in the Marshall Islands and participated in the 1945 second invasion of the island of Iwo Jima. I asked Buford what it was like there in those assaults. You had to be careful when you operated that boat, getting away from that beach. You, you had to back up with the boat dock with it after you landed the troops. If you came back and broached that boat into the waves, the waves would carry you sideways, and you'd be a direct target for those, those gunners on the beach. Once the U.S. Severe's assignment was finished there in Iwo Jima, they headed for the island of Okinawa. And during her two days and nights there, anchored off Okinawa, their crew worked continuously, unloading the CBs and Marines and their equipment. And on June the 19th, there was an intensive air and sea bombardment. 
Buford told me that while they were there at that invasion in Okinawa, there was continuous smokescreens that they had to lay down to keep the Japanese kamikaze planes from coming upon them. They had been successful in damaging one of the destroyers, but his ship was untouched. He told me there was a lot of prayer. I never had learned the Lord's Prayer until I was 18 years old and in the Navy. But I got news for you. He was with me every day. And then Buford spoke of the troops. He spoke of their youth. He spoke of their determination and their duty and their courage. He spoke of their faces. He said that he can still, even today, he can still see their faces. This was the first mission of the war in the Pacific for me, and it was an experience that I shall never forget. I was coming up 19 years old, and all of this was like a bad dream, and I still dream about it a lot. As the troops came aboard, one could see from their faces and appearances that they had been through a terrible time. They'd done all they could do, and they wanted to go home. Wow, the horrors of war and the dreams that still plague so many of our veterans, even today. Buford told me that he was there on the USS Severe at the celebration of VJ Day at Pearl Harbor, August 1945. And then they sailed to Japan to take part in the occupation of the now defeated Japanese nation. He served proudly in the US Navy until his discharge in June of 1946. And remember at the beginning of his talk, Buford spoke of his brother Darrell who went into the army. His brother Darrell Richardson was there at the Normandy invasion with the 8th Army Medical Corps on June the 9th, 1944. During that invasion, he was severely wounded by mortar fire and he never completely recovered. He died years later in a VA hospital. The horrors of war. As my interview with veteran Buford Richardson ended, he talked of the lighter things of life. He talked of his wonderful wife, his lifetime partner. He talked of family, of so many wonderful children and grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and he talked of his sweet Lord, his Heavenly Father. My thanks to Buford Richardson for his great service to our nation in World War II and for allowing me to tell his story. I'm taking a break now, but there's much more to come. I'm Jerry Stewart. I'll be back with more veterans interviews after these messages. Hello and welcome back to this special Memorial Day tribute program. I'm Jerry Stewart. Today we're taking this special time to give honor and respect to those who have served and fought and paid the ultimate price to keep our America safe and free. It's also a special time to give thanks to all our veterans. It was all the way back in 2008 when I had my first conversation with Ernest and Bernice Zimmerman. And in the course of our conversation, I realized that they were the first World War II veterans I had spoken with who had both served in the military. And even though I had talked about the great price our women played in winning that war as civilians, I had never told the story as given to me by a veteran couple. 
I now give you the story of World War II veterans Ernest and Bernice Zimmerman. On December the 7th, 1941, when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor and forced us into war, it was clear that it would take not just our men going to battle to win that war, it would take all Americans working together to see us to victory. But with so many of the men going off to war, who would work in the offices and factories and assembly lines to provide the crucial supplies needed to fight that war? The American woman. But could a woman do the physical work of a man? They had to, or the cause was lost. But not only did our women in America work in civilian jobs, branches of the military were actually open to women. The U.S. Navy opened a new and special division called the WAVES, which stood for Women Accepted for Volunteer Emergency Services. So, in August of 1942, the WAVES set up to begin receiving recruits. But how would they get the recruits? The same as any other military unit. Go out to the American people and ask. So they did. At that time, Ernest and Bernice didn't even know each other. Ernest worked on a farm and Bernice worked in a paper mill. But one night after working, Bernice came across something that changed her life forever. I was walking home one night. Gas was rationed. Everything was rationed. And we walked. I had to go through the main part of town, and there was a trailer up there advertising, come join recruiting. They were recruiting. And I stood there for a while, and I listened, and then I went, I don't know, something just came over me, and I went in and I asked about that. And before I went home, I was down by the post office writing a test. Before she knew it, Bernice was in Milwaukee for her physical and then given orders to be shipped out. During the night, a train came along and picked that up and took us to Chicago. We got out of Chicago, and we went to New York, and we had training at Brown's New York Counter College. That was our basic training. Bernice did well in her training and was one of four assigned to go to Washington, D.C. to train other WAVE recruits in what they referred to as ship services. The work there was hard but very rewarding. There were a lot of girls all determined to make a difference in that war. Our barracks had 1,500 girls in it. They came from all walks of life. It was all women that took the place of the men that went out to sea. That was our duty. Because Ernest was some years younger than Bernice, his enlistment came later when he turned 18. He decided he wanted to join the Navy. So in October of 1943, Ernest joined up. He was sworn in at St. Louis, and from there, he went to basic training and ended up in hospital core school in San Diego. His job would be in medical care services, and he had to learn one very special skill, drawing blood from a patient while blindfolded. In combat, they said a lot of times it would be in the dark. You had to practice to get your needle into that vein blindfolded. After Ernest completed his special medical training, he was assigned to the 24th Marines, 4th Division, 3rd Battalion. His division was part of a planned attack on an island that was expected by many to be an easy assignment, the small island of Iwo Jima. But no one expected what they got, one of the deadliest Marine battles in World War II. And Ernest was there. And I landed, I was right up in the front lines, helping to, taking care of wounded and helping get them back to the, 
temporary hospital, you know, so the doctors could really get take care of them and then get them back out of the ship. Ernest's job was to provide medical services to the wounded. I asked him just what he saw there. Saw a lot of dead Marines. You see them laying there, but you couldn't do anything. You just had to keep moving. As we went in, you could see equipment tanks and stuff blowing up. And what about the bravery? What did he see of the bravery? One would go and the others wouldn't let him go by themselves. They'd all group together. And if one had to, something special, it had to be done, like blow up a pillbox. There was a lot of them around trying to keep the gaps down while he got the charger, the explosives up there to blow it up. It took over 30 days for the Marines to finally take that island. The Japanese lost over 20,000 soldiers there. But as harsh as that battle was at Iwo Jima, the U.S. Marines knew that they had a much more difficult task ahead. They were being trained to hit the beaches of Japan. And our military leaders hoped and prayed for some other way to defeat the Japanese. Because just like Iwo Jima, they knew that the Japanese military, even their civilians, would fight to their death. I asked Ernest what would have happened if there had been no bomb if America would have had to take the battle to the island of Japan. We go to the schools here and talk about it, and I always tell the kids, if we would have had the land on Japan, we'd still be fighting there. Because the way they were dug in on uh, Iwo Jima, you can imagine what it would have been like on the island of Japan. Thank God the battle was never taken to Japan. Our death count would have surely been so much higher. Bernice told me that her living quarters were so close to Arlington National Cemetery that she could see each funeral there. And what she saw there made such an impression on her, she still feels it today. To this day, when I hear taps, it just sends shivers to me. When the war was over, Ernest and Bernice both left the military and went back to civilian life. But you say, hold it a minute. How did Ernest and Bernice finally meet? I asked Bernice that question. My husband's sister was also in service, and she was my best friend, my best buddy. We used to, all the service people used to write to all these guys, and so I used to write to him. But that's not where the story ends. Even though Ernest and Bernice wrote to each other during the war, interestingly enough, they never met until 10 years later. Bernice decided to visit her special friend, made her way to Ernest's hometown, and they finally met, fell in love, and they married. But to end his story, Ernest gave me one very sad part of war. Ernest's brother, Henry, was a machinist on the USS Kavanaugh, and on April the 7th, 1943, during a Japanese bombing attack, a Jap plane dropped a bomb that went directly into the ship's stack. It exploded deep down inside the engine room, killing 19 men. Ernest's brother was one of those 19 killed. One of the truly terrible tragedies of war. By the way, one final note. Although it had been planned that women in military would only be during this emergency of war, the women performed so well that the Women's Armed Services Integration Act was passed by Congress in June of 1948, giving women in America permanent status in our armed services. I want to thank Ernest and Bernice Zimmerman for allowing me to tell their war story and for their great service to our nation. I'm Jerry Stewart, 
I'll be back with more of this special Memorial Day tribute program after these messages. And now we return to The Price Paid for Freedom. Hello and welcome back to this special Memorial Day program. I'm Jerry Stewart. In 1935, one of America's most famous generals, Douglas MacArthur, had been sent to the Philippines as a military advisor. But on December the 10th, 1941, just three days after the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, the Japanese made their attack on the Philippines. And although the American and Filipino troops fought valiantly, they were greatly outnumbered forcing the troops to pull back for one final stand at the Batan Peninsula. Finally, on March the 11th, 1942, when it became all too evident that the Allied troops would not prevail, General MacArthur was ordered to leave the Philippines and go to Australia. MacArthur did not want to leave his men, but he made this promise for all to hear. He said, I shall return. And on October the 20th, 1944, after almost four years of bloody battles with the Japanese, MacArthur kept his promise. He did return. And retired Army Captain Eldred Bishop was on the beach the day MacArthur returned. This is his story. In 1941, Albert Bishop was a teacher. But on June the 27th, 1941, at the age of 22, he was inducted into the U.S. Army. At that time, the U.S. was not yet in the war, and Elbert was sent to do his basic training at Edgewood Arsenal in Maryland. He was assigned to a company that was trained in the use of chemical warfare. Then one day, it came. We heard these trumpets sound off. Every trumpeter in the area was called to blow the call to arms. Most of us had never emerged the call of arms. And they blew this call to arms, and everybody said we got to stumble at the bivouac area grounds. And nobody knew what was going on. And that's when the general announced that war had been declared. The Japanese had bombed Pearl Harbor. America was at war. Elbert and his company were sent to Fort DuPont, Delaware, for further chemical warfare training. And then they were shipped to Australia. On our way into Australia was when MacArthur made his famous speech, I shall return. We listened to him over the, the ship's loudspeaker system. While in Australia, Albert Bishop and a number of other soldiers were given the opportunity to become officers. There's combat classes in Australia, and those of us who were in New Guinea came back to, to Australia for training, and uh, we stayed for, uh, for 90 days and we trained and became second lieutenants. After becoming an officer, now second lieutenant Albert Bishop's company was split and his new company was assigned to the 6th Army, which was fighting vicious battles with the Japanese. The 6th Army was one of the divisions assigned to General MacArthur's fleet as he fought his way back to the Philippines. Bishop's company's job was to supply the 6th Army with everything they needed to fight the Japanese which put Elbert and his company right in the thick of it. A huge number of soldiers in that. As far as you could see, in any direction, there were ships and airplanes and soldiers on the ships. The battles were harsh and terrible with heavy casualties on both sides, but the Allies continued their relentless attacks. The 6th Army fought valiantly, onward, unrelenting, until they came to one of the main islands of the Philippines, Leyte Island. 
and there were 270,000 Japanese suicide troops there waiting. Albert remembers it all. A great battle took place there until finally on October the 20th, 1944, the 6th Army took two major beaches on Leyte Island. And after only five hours on the beach, with gunfire still being heard, General Douglas MacArthur and his staff waded ashore. He had kept his promise. That day, Elbert Bishop was there. When MacArthur walked ashore and you saw all those newspapers, they had MacArthur walking onto Leyte Beach. We were already on the beach. Elbert Bishop still remembers MacArthur's famous words. People of the Philippines, I have returned. By the grace of Almighty God, our forces stand again upon Philippine soil. I asked Elbert what he thought of General MacArthur. I admired him very much. I liked his corncob pipe. I liked the way he used to slope his hat. And I thought he was a great soldier. The American forces had taken back the Pacific and the Philippine Islands, but all at a great price. In 1942, when MacArthur escaped the island, he was forced to leave behind tens of thousands of stranded soldiers, unable to escape. Thousands fought to their deaths. Others died from sickness and starvation. But when they were finally forced to surrender, the brutality of the Japanese army was unspeakable. They forced over 60,000 sick and wounded, starving prisoners to march 70 miles to prison camps. And during this march, which came to be known as the Bataan Death March, about 10,000 American soldiers died from starvation and maltreatment. My thanks goes out to retired Captain Elbert Bishop, the men of the 6th Army, and all who fought in the Pacific for our freedom and the freedom of the world. I'm Jerry Stewart. I'll be back with more stories after these messages. Hello and welcome back to this special Memorial Day tribute program. I'm Jerry Stewart. It was 1963 when then U.S. President Lyndon Johnson began sending thousands of U.S. troops into the little country of Vietnam. Our nation's plan was to halt the move of communism across that country and to get our boys back home quickly. But sadly, that was not to be. And over 58,000 of our young U.S. men were killed in what came to be known as the Vietnam War. And our next veteran, Edward Rofe, was there. As still a young man, he was drafted into the Army and sent to basic training. But Edward wanted to do something more than just carry a rifle through the jungles of Vietnam. So he asked for his options. We went over what was available, and I chose to go to Signal Corps School at Fort Gordon, Georgia. Edward explained to me that Signal Corps School was where they taught about the operation and repairs and maintenance of the all-new transistor radios being used in the military. And for there to be success in Vietnam or any warfare, there must be good communication to direct battles and troop movement. I did that for about six months, and then they sent me to Germany, where my company commander was a helicopter pilot, and he talked me into applying for flight school, which I did. 
So Edward went to helicopter flight school and was trained to be a military helicopter pilot. As he continued his training, he was sent to various schools for further, more advanced training. Then he was sent to Fort Benning, Georgia, where he became part of a new unit being formed, the U.S. Army 1st Cavalry Division. And soon, Edward and this all-new division were all sent to Vietnam. Then, Edward became part of another first. I flew what was the first armed helicopters at that time. They took some of the Hueys and put 7.62 machine guns on them, or also they had 2.75 folding fin rockets. That's what I flew for six months there with the 1st Cavalry Division. Now some have asked, is it really that dangerous flying a helicopter in war? Is the enemy interested in shooting a helicopter down? Oh yes. In fact, for the enemy in Vietnam, taking out a helicopter was a great prize, a, a trophy. Edward told me about his first mission in Vietnam. After the first sortie and returning to base to refuel, I discovered that my helicopter was full of holes. I, I had been shot uh, a number of times, but I, I, I myself was not hit. I was not wounded at all. One of the holes in my ship was indicative of a rifle round going right up past my right shoulder and then out the top of the ship. And I said, I thank the Lord that it did not hit me. Aside from all the danger that Edward and all the other helicopter pilots and crews faced, another great problem was that as the war progressed, they could see that their learned tactics and maneuvers, what they learned in school, they did not work in Vietnam. So they were forced by experience to develop new tactics, new strategies, just to keep alive. But Edward was very fortunate. He was never hit. He was never wounded. But not all were that fortunate. According to my research, there were about 12,000 helicopters that served in the Vietnam War. Of these, over 7,000 were the Huey helicopters like Edward piloted. And the results? Of the over 7,000 Hueys that flew there in Vietnam, over 3,300 were shot down. And the crews? Over 1,000 helicopter pilots killed in action, with over 1,100 helicopter crews also killed. The tolls of those flying helicopters in Vietnam was very high, and Edward told me that he thanks God every day that he came back home safely. As our time together was winding down, I've learned through my 20 years of veterans' interviews that the vets rarely want to mention any honors or awards or medals that they received while serving in the military. So I asked Edward if there was anything else, any commendations or awards to be mentioned, and he said yes. He told me that during his first tour of duty in Vietnam, he was awarded the Soldier's Medal. Now, the Soldier's Medal is the highest awarded medal you can receive while in the Army for non-combat service. I asked Edward to tell me that story. This voice came up on the radio and said, two helicopters flying over camp so-and-so at such-and-such -such a coordinates, please respond. So I checked our coordinates, and it was us. So I said, okay, what can I do for you? And they said, we have an incident down here in which a couple of young Vietnamese kids had won 
family was grief-stricken, and they wanted to go out and get his body. But the Special Forces people refused to let him go out there because the Special Forces guys had no maps of this minefield. They asked if we could help in any way. So Edward and his crew landed their helicopter and asked what they wanted them to do. Can you fly your helicopter over hover over the live minefield where the little boy's body is lying and retrieve the body without getting blown up by the other mines? It seemed like something that could be done, but there was something else. Consider the fact that the downwash from our rotors could possibly set off other mines. There might be enough force from the downwash of our rotors to, to do that. Oh, wow. The stakes, the chance of further explosions was even higher. Now realize here that there was no one to save. This was strictly a humanitarian effort, but Edward and his crew talked, and they agreed. They would go and retrieve the young boy's body. We got back in the aircraft and picked it up to a hover and about two or three feet off the ground, hovered out to the body, and I brought it down as close as I could to the ground without touching, held it there, and then instructed my crew chief. I said, okay, can you reach him? And he said, yes. So he reached out and grabbed the body and pulled him into the aircraft, went back and uh, delivered it to the family. Wow, what a powerful story. What a great, great service. After he served in Vietnam, Edward Rofe became an Army officer. He came back to the U.S., found the love of his life, married, and they together decided that Edward would make the U.S. Army his career. He served for 20 years and retired as an Army Major. My thanks to retired U.S. Army Major Edward Rofe for allowing me to tell his story and for his amazing service to our nation. I'm Jerry Stewart. I'll return with some final thoughts after these messages. Hello, I'm Jerry Stewart. Welcome back to this special Memorial Day tribute to our heroes. Just what is a hero? According to Webster's Dictionary, a hero is not just someone who performs an heroic deed or action. First and foremost, a hero is someone willing to put themselves in that circumstance, to put everything on the line for a greater cause of good. And as I gathered these stories for today's program, it was oh so clear to me that each of these who spoke today were truly willing to give everything that they possessed, even their own lives, for our cause of freedom. And that's how Americans became a free nation. That's how we have remained a free nation, because so many have been willing to give so much. And today we say thank you. But the great price of freedom has not just been paid by our veterans. All across our nation today are moms and dads, sons and daughters, husbands and wives, aching for the loss of their own hero longing that somehow they would be back safely home. But sadly, they will never come home. What a terrible price to pay. And to those today who grieve over their tragic loss, we say thank you. We pray for you. And then there's the horror of war that some, no matter how hard they may try, could not leave it on the battlefield. And they continue today. To those, we say thank you. 
May God give you peace and rest. And finally, those today who are serving. It was Ronald Reagan who said, Freedom is not something to be secured in any one moment in time. We must struggle to preserve it every day because freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. And that is so true. So wherever you are today, wherever you are serving, know this. We see you. We understand your sacrifice. And we thank you. And those of us, we Americans who have reaped the bounty of this great sacrifice, what are we to do? We are to remember. We are to pray. Dear God, be with our veterans today. Let them know our hearts, how very proud we are of them. And Lord, give them peace in their hearts. Gently draw them to you with your mercy and kindness and give them your peace, which passes all understanding. And God, we ask for peace. No, we beg for peace in America. Help us to find peace. Well, that's all for today. Thanks for joining me in this very special tribute to our heroes. Today, find one very special hero and say thanks. I'm Jerry Stewart saying goodbye for now. May God bless America. May God bless our veterans. And may God richly bless you.